Welcome back for another edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. It's Ian Mendes and Haley Salvian in the driver's seats for this episode of the podcast. Coming up, we'll discuss the Tom Wilson suspension and whether or not the NHL got it right or got it wrong. Tim Graham drops by uh, with a State of the Buffalo Sabres uh, update for us as Buffalo might be the most interesting team to monitor ahead of the trade deadline. We'll also get Haley's thoughts on the fact that uh, the team that she covers, Calgary Flames, had a coaching change last week. We'll do multiple choice madness, which will include your choice to take any player from an American team for a playoff series. Who are you taking? Patrick Kane, Victor Hedman, who would you take? And we'll wrap up with some of your listener questions as well. And Haley, as we kick off another week, it's another week and another um, Tom Wilson controversy as the Capitals winger suspended for seven games for that hit on Brandon Carlo. And it's, it's interesting because this time I'm actually seeing some people come to Tom Wilson's defense saying, this isn't the most egregious hit I've ever seen. This isn't, uh, this isn't that bad. Uh, then you see the other side. This guy's a repeat offender. You can't let Tom Wilson get away with it. So they give him a seven game suspension, Haley. In a 56-game season, that's, you know, a little bit, it's almost like a 10 or 11-game suspension. My question to you, Haley, to kick off the show today, did the NHL's Department of Player Safety, did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? Were they bang on, little off, with seven games for Tom Wilson? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the first things that I saw was, you know, the reaction from the other team, the Boston Bruins after. And I do believe that their coach said that it was a predatory hit. A lot of the guys were saying it was very dirty. I mean, their teammate, um, the player, was in the hospital. And there was no penalty called on that play. Um, but then that seven-game suspension did come down. It's Tom Wilson's fifth suspension. Um, regardless if you think it's the worst hit out of those five that he's been suspended for, um, I do think that in the in the rule book, um, the fact that it was technically a boarding call um, allowed them to give him seven games. Um, and I, I just think that for a guy with a pre-existing history of dangerous hits, um, predatory, if you want to go that far as you know some have, I, I do think that the opportunity to be given the benefit of the doubt and the opportunity to be given a lighter sentence is lost because of the amount of times that you've been suspended doing this. Um, you, The NHL cannot make it seem like they're enabling this kind of behavior by not handing down a stiff suspension. So regardless of people think it's the worst hit in the world, I do think that it's important that the NHL did this because you can't keep putting players and their health and safety in danger like that. And, you know, the thing on Wilson is, Haley, he got a 20-game suspension. Last time he was suspended, 20 games for uh, just obliterating Oscar Sundquist in a preseason game. Now, he did get that basically negotiated down to 14 games, okay? But again, the league handed him a 20-game suspension. Here's my only thought on this, and you tell me if you agree or disagree. I think that when you get suspended in the NHL, it should be an incremental uh, kind of formula, meaning if you got suspended for 20 games before, that's the starting point for your next suspension. And by suspending somebody for 20 games in the past and then seven this time, what are you saying? You're saying, wow, what you did yeah. before was worse. And so where I this agree This one's with, not that bad. Yeah. yeah, this one's not that bad. But 
if we if the point that like to me the entire point of supplemental uh you know discipline is to correct the behavior right yeah. it's to correct the behavior this guy has done it again and i don't care if there's 2 years in between 3 years in between or 10 years in between it's a factor and i'm not saying that this is the worst thing that he's done it's not but like you said he's a guy who has a history and to me when you have a history you have to you can't just look at it in a vacuum and say this is the hit on Carlo. It's probably worth five games. No, it is. It yeah. starts at twenty games because that's the last time we saw you. Like if you had a, if you were in school or if you were any place of work and you got suspended for four weeks for some transgression, and they said, "Don't you ever do this again," and then yeah. you know later in the school year you did something, they're like, "Ah, oh, okay, here's a, you're off for three days." What's the message? And that's yeah. the only thing I wonder about in all of this. Yeah, and I and I do think that's fair, Ian. I guess the only thing is, you know, going by the book because it was technically boarding, that that changes the amount of games that they're able to hand out. Um, but at the same time, you know, I did find what the league actually said about this interesting because, you know, I think some people were saying like, oh, what? So Tom Wilson can't hit anyone against the boards just because they're not looking because it's Tom Wilson. But I think what the league said was, you know. Carlo and other unsuspecting players are eligible to be checked, but it's the suspension is because of the totality of the circumstances surrounding the hit. So like, like you said, they're not looking at this in a vacuum. What separates this hit from others, this is what the league said, is the direct and significant contact to a defenseless player's head causing a violent impact with the glass. And this is a player with a substantial disciplinary record taking advantage of of a player who is in a defenseless position and doing so with significant force. Um, so, I mean, I agree with all that. and I, But I do think it's interesting what you raise about start from start from where it was last time. Um, because if they keep getting tacked onto 20 games versus oh, I might get three, I might get five. That might uh, – I mean, the speed of the game is so fast that I don't know if you would actually think that in your head, especially if – that kind of behavior is maybe ingrained into the way you play, but I certainly think that it would be interesting to see um, how much this would change if that was something that was implemented. Yeah, and and Wilson's a really effective hockey player. This isn't a yeah, one he's dimensional. Not just a, yeah, yeah, he's a really good hockey player when he uh, and he and like Brad Marchand. And this is where I think the irony is when you see the Bruins coming out and complaining about this, you're like, well, you do employ Brad Marchand, so let's just pump the brakes here a little bit on the hypocrisy, right? That, that's one of the, yeah. the things I always think about, Haley. When you see a, a vicious hit, it's the same playbook every time. The team whose player got hurt says, this is awful, throw the book at them. The other team, they're like, well, I, I'd have to see the replay. I have it like they just kind of, you know, they walk yeah. the line. It. I wish everyone would just admit they were hypocrites when it comes to <laughs> high hits and uh, everything in, in hockey, and it would make yeah. life a lot easier. But, you know, listening to the Boston Bruins try and preach off a pulpit about, um, you know, player safety, it's like it, like if the Houston Astros came out and started talking about cheating, yeah. would you, well, I don't know, would you, wouldn't you be like, I don't know. But but the thing is, and I really like, by the way, uh, the column that Fluto wrote last week for us in The Athletic on Brad Marchand, unbelievable piece on – Marshan going for a dinner at the Cassidy's house and how he's changed his game. Like, so I do believe you can change as a player. 
I think Brad Marchand is a world-class player, and I do think that he's changed his reputation. But the, the, the Bruins have to remember that they have stood by their guy when he's been running amok. And this is what sometimes, unfortunately, happens when you have the Wilsons and the Marchands on your roster, right? Yeah, definitely. I agree. So, Haley, last week, uh, you and I were both covering the Ottawa Senators-Calgary Flames game a little bit from a distance. And yep. Ottawa lays down a uh, – or sorry, Calgary lays down a 7-3 beating of Ottawa. The last thing I'm thinking of in a 7-3 hockey game is the coach of the winning team is going to get fired. So walk our listeners through because I think anytime a coach uh, is let go in the National Hockey League in the middle of the season, it's an interesting and, and intriguing story. What was your surprise factor on on seeing the Calgary Flames head coach let go af- Jeff Ward after his 7-3 win? Yeah, well, you know, there's not that many NHL coaches that I you could probably say that have gone out on a winning note, um, you know, after being fired. So I think, you know, it, it, it wasn't so much shocking that there was a coaching change, but it was the timing of it coming right after a 7-3 loss. Um, I think that was pretty surprising, but... I think that just signaled to me and probably to a lot of people that this was a bit of a a fait accompli situation. You know, this was already decided regardless of what happened in that hockey game. You know, win or lose, we're going to make this announcement tonight. We're going to do it tomorrow. What They obviously did it overnight. Um, I think it was 1.30 Eastern time for for Elian. Um, So it was already decided. You know, that was pretty clear to me that that decision was already made regardless of the outcome of the hockey game. So that was the part that was a little bit shocking. Um, But again, the way that the Calgary Flames have been playing, it wasn't surprising that there was a coaching change. I don't want to lay all of this at the feet of Jeff Ward. Um, You know, I I did enjoy my interactions with Jeff. I think he was a a good person. I think that um, he came into this team – in really difficult circumstances last year when he was brought in as the interim coach after Bill Peters was, you know, he resigned after the really troubling allegations against him from Akeem Alou. Um, He came into that really difficult situation. He did an excellent job. He helped, you know, turn that flame season. You know, he turned the tides. They made it into the bubble. Um, You know, they beat the Winnipeg Jets. They ended up losing to the Dallas Stars in the first round. Um, but I think that was a really nice, it was a good, you have to give credit where credit's due. He did a really good job in really difficult circumstances last season, but he just couldn't seem to get that kind of, it just didn't work this year. It just didn't, you could tell that it wasn't working. The Flames were a, at best, 500 hockey team, um, and even when even the games where they were beating the Ottawa Senators, Ian, I don't think you were watching that game and saying like, "Ooh, this is a juggernaut!" Like, look at these Calgary Flames. Like, their puck possession numbers weren't very good. I think the Ottawa Senators actually had more high danger and scoring chances than the Flames. I think it was just, you know, catching a goalie on a bad night. You get Matt Murray. You get. Joey Decord, then the Flames were just kind of, and I mean, some of the goals, the one goal that Sean Monahan scored, like that, that wasn't NHL defense against him. Like he had all the time and space in the world to, to snipe that shot. So um, even when they were winning, it wasn't exactly great hockey. So, you know, you can look at the scoreboard and you look at the record but you watch the team and, and it just wasn't what Brad Tree Living wanted. And so he made the change and 
this was the most shocking part. I guess I buried the lead here because they brought in Daryl Sutter, who has not been behind a bench since he was let go from the LA Kings in, I believe, 2016-17. He was a special advisor to Dallas Eakins in Anaheim, but you know he hasn't coached in three years, and he hasn't coached the Calgary Flames in almost 15 years um, since 2005-2006. So I think the fact that it was Daryl Sutter just added to the shock level because I think when, at least in this market, when people were talking about, is there going to be a coaching change? Who could we bring in? It was like Bruce Boudreaux, Gerard Gallant. Who would be better? Oh, I want Boudreaux. I want Gallant. I don't think anyone thought that Daryl Sutter was an option. And I am so excited. Let me just say, I watched a 15-minute YouTube compilation of Sutterisms yesterday. And it's incredible. Like, yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of these Sutterisms, but he somebody asked him, I'm getting so off topic, I apologize. This is the beauty of having our own podcast. I can talk about random things. Um, I'm not like embarrassing myself on the radio, just on our own national show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he, somebody asked Daryl Sutter post game in LA after a loss, like, what did you say to the guys in the room after this? He's like, flights at 11. Like he's got a touch of Bill Belichick in him, right? Where he can sometimes just be like two word answers and drive. But you know, the guys who love him, like I I did now, now it's time for a shameless book plug for me. I did a book with Jamie McLennan a few years ago. And, and, you know, one of the things noodles, we did a whole chapter on Daryl Sutter because, uh, you know, noodles is like, guys love him. Like the Daryl Sutter you see in in the media is different than the Daryl Sutter that you'll see. Uh, kind of in the media, uh, sorry, the media and the and the the, the guy that uh, the players know are two different things. And look, he's yeah. got two Stanley Cup rings from the L.A. Kings. Like that, that carries a lot of weight. It's not like Daryl Sutter was coaching in uh, Calgary, left for L.A., didn't have a ton of success. Now the Flames are bringing him back. No, they're bringing him back with two rings uh, yeah. on his resume. So that I'm always interested in those kind of midseason uh, coaching changes. You know, Haley, I thought one of the most Bizarre stories of the weekend. So the San Jose Sharks are playing at home to the Vegas Golden Knights. And Vegas is staying at the Fairmont Hotel in downtown San Jose. And all of a sudden, the Sharks, they kind of go back to their hotel. And they're like, oh, by the way, the hotel's closed now. Due to COVID and kind of financial uh, difficulties, you got to go find a new place. Like in the middle of a, a road trip, the San Jose yeah. Sharks got kicked out oh sorry the the Vegas Golden Knights got kicked out of their hotel in San Jose and now the league is scrambling too because now you know you have these certain approved hotels that's up in the air like I gotta tell you this was a this to me was a bizarre story to watch it play out where an NHL team was uh, essentially forced to move and switch out of hotels in the middle of a road trip and in the middle of a pandemic too like imagine just having all of your stuff kicked out of the hotel and you're basically on the street just okay. Let's wait for the bus and let's go find somewhere to go. Like that is a. I, I feel like the 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 Golden Knights were like the team. If you've ever been on a, like an all inclusive or a trip where like your flight's at five p.m. but the hotel checkout's eleven a.m. and then you got that five hours with your luggage. <laughs> you and you're just like, got oh, all your bags. I don't. I, I guess I'll go to the pool, but I don't know. Should I? Like, I guess I'll use the community shower. Like it. Like that's how I picture. The Vegas Golden Knights, like, oh, man, like, what are we going to do for the next six hours here? Well, especially because of all the 
COVID protocols too. Like not that they would just go to the pool, but because the hotel got shut down, but yeah. it's not like the Golden Knights could just go somewhere and hang out. Like he, these players are under very, very strict protocols. Like they took the glass off the penalty box. Like you can't just go to a random restaurant with your entire team and sit there and wait for, for your plan. So that was a really weird story that came out. And the thing that got me too was like, what all of a sudden happened to this hotel? Why were they not upfront about like their financial situation when the league approached them about like, let's book this. And I mean, why not just let them finish? I I don't know. I don't know what filing for bankruptcy is like in America. And if like, why couldn't you, I don't know. Just let them finish the, the, let them finish their stay. Let everybody who's got to stay finish it. And then yeah. Like that's terrible. Like I just, it's so, and it's not even just the golden Knights. Like if there was other people in that hotel, Imagine people in that hotel as well, sitting on the curb with Marc-Andre Fleury, like, this sucks, right? Um, but And I'm pretty sure in the CBA, um, you know, it's written into the CBA that these players have to stay in five-star hotels. Um, I, I believe yeah. so. Oh, yeah. I, I know that was it at least a couple of years ago. So this wasn't just like a Holiday Inn that shut down. Like, this is a five-star hotel that just filed for bankruptcy and closed. It's just very bizarre. And we should have looked to see if I should have looked to see if Jesse Granger um, did anything because that would have been like, imagine just being there and seeing that and getting guys to talk about what that was like. Like mm, we should call up Jesse and ask, but yeah. maybe next time. <laughs> I see. I use him. Uh, we use him on the Thursday show for Granger things. So maybe we'll ask him about that coming about up it. on, on, That'd be fun. Yeah. On, what do you do when you get kicked out of a hotel? Yeah. See, now I'm picturing you m- mentioning the Holiday Inn. Now I'm picturing Marc-Andre Fleury at the Continental Breakfast at a Holiday Inn Express, like waiting in line. He's with- probably a waffle guy, eh? <laughs> waiting for the waffle maker. <laughs> you know the we- one where you tur- you pour, you get the, you go with your the, cup the, yeah. and it pours the batter <laughs> and then you pour it into the maker. Oh, and, and the bacon yeah. is always way too crispy at yeah, any- they burn it continental breakfast right yeah Every and time. they the eggs are always like wet oh they're it's like it's it's like that they're fake eggs it's like yeah. gr- like granular yeah if you go to continental breakfast and you go and get anything but just like the fruit that doesn't look soggy the waffles are probably safe um like that's it right. it's not unless it's continental it's free Imagine paying for that buffet, paying for all you can eat breakfast and getting that. Oh, I know. We're but you know what? It, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was never on the rails. It was never. No. It was no. never on the rails. No. Not for once. No. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. 
It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at Fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. All right, Haley, I will tell you that I think the the most intriguing story in the National Hockey League right now is the Buffalo Sabres. And I thought one of the best columns last week on uh, on our side at The Athletic was done by Tim Graham. And uh, Tim reached out to a handful of former Sabres captains, granted them the cloak of anonymity to speak. And it was great to hear uh, players that are so connected to the team, the community, um, speak out. And you can sense the pal- there's palpable anger and frustration. In, in Buffalo. And so that's why we want to get Tim on here is to kind of uh, tap into that. So first of all, Tim, thanks for taking a few minutes to join Haley and I on the podcast today. Ian and Haley, I'm honored to be here. So let's, let's ask the first general question, because you know that your market better than anybody, Tim, what is the anger level, frustration level towards the Buffalo Sabres this week? What kind of scale are we using here? Is this a one to 10 or a Scoville scale or... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe one to ten, one to ten might be the simplest way to uh, to kind of illustrate this. You know, I could be funny and say, "Oh, it's a 15. Um, it could get worse. I think, um, and I think that there's also so much anon- um, anonymity. See, you know, you said that word. Now it's planted in there. There's so much apathy uh, that's in this stew. Uh, this roiling stew of of whatever it is that Sabres fans feel about their team. Um, you know, even the the stuff that would be considered positive a year ago, the fact that, hey, we got Jack Eichel, uh, we got Jeff Skinner. Uh, I think that there's a, a growing uh, segment of this fan base that wouldn't care if Jack Eichel got traded because they just they're just so upset and and seeing this recurring uh nightmare uh, every other night as the schedule has been uh of these sabers games that are just getting more and more uh irrelevant and, uh, and i think we've probably already hit it's not even getting increasingly irrelevant they are they're irrelevant and in the in the market here i think that um it's a shame to say in such a proud hockey market I think that the Western New York sports fan right now is just craving the NFL draft. You know, let's get to the draft. And and that's the, all right, a little bit of an offshoot of this, but it's kind of a strange time to be a Bills fan too, because they have incredible stability. Usually this time of year, you're talking about a coaching change or a GM change, or they've lost a coordinator, uh, or what are they going to do at quarterback? Or you're talking about a top, 10 draft pick. Who are they going to draft? Well, now all those people are back. All those positions are set. So you have these Western New York sports fans right now that this should be the void. This should be the the time when the Sabres are dominant in their thoughts. And it, it's just not there. They don't care. Uh, I think that they're, they're looking for something else. And I guess for context, for people listening, you know, just to be able to compare, what would a normal hockey season where the Sabres aren't looking like this? I mean, I guess it's been a little while, um, but what would a good Buffalo Sabres, you know, hockey season be like in Western New York? 
Well, you'd be looking forward to even Tuesday nights whenever they were playing. You didn't even have to go to the arena. You know, this is a, a team that is intensely followed uh, the games. Uh, you know, of course, you're, we're talking about the pandemic, which makes it even tougher, the, this malaise. Uh, but you'd, you'd, you'd make an excuse to go to the bar on a Tuesday night, you know, have a few beers, watch the game. Um, you, you, you were watching it at home, um, whatever it was, with your family, with your kids. Uh, it was it, it helps helps you get through these long winters, uh, as it does in in most you know North American hockey towns. It's a similar diversion, but in a place like Buffalo, you know those you know you start getting into March. Things are getting bleak. You know the gray. You know maybe you're getting sunny. You know two days out of seven instead of just one. But it's it's a needed mental crutch. I think you need it. Uh, for your, for your, uh, for your stability, uh, for your psyche. And um, yeah, it's just not there. You know, the fans, uh, the, the stadiums generally filled, you know, they've been bad. I mean, they're looking at 10 straight years of no playoffs and, and Haley, you know, I covered them. My, la- my last game covering the Sabres as the beat writer, I was there for seven years. My last game was Chris Drury and Daniel Briere's last game with the Sabres. Uh, things have taken a turn since then, but I covered <laughs> A bankruptcy. I covered the owners being led away in handcuffs. Uh, I covered, you know, the post Dominic Hashik era where, you know, Michael Pekka's contract holdout or not a holdout, but a contract dispute. Um, all that stuff was so ugly. Gary Bettman actually ran the team for a, for a bit. Um, and yet this is worse. This is, I mean, the owner led away in handcuffs, embarrassed, you know, obviously humiliating to the entire region. I think the fans now are detached more uh, than they were back then. And maybe it has something to do with social media or the fact that the bills are good. And back then the bills were, weren't. And so maybe there's a comparison there that there's such a drop off. But I think that the angst from the fans uh, is way worse now than it was even back then. Has anyone done the correlation between the team's success and Tim Graham covering them? Maybe that was the problem. <laughs> Maybe you were the key to this whole thing, Tim. Well, I covered a bankruptcy, though. My first year on the beat, uh, what you know, Michael Pekka can't get signed, and uh, and Dominic Hasek wants out. So, I mean, there's a there's a mixed bag there, Ian. Yeah. So, uh, what I really liked was your column last week, where and if, if if listeners haven't had a chance to check this out, please do because you went and spoke to uh, five former captains of the Buffalo Sabers, granting them. Uh, you know, anonymity in exchange for a blunt assessment of the franchise. Was there anything in your conversations, Tim, with any of these former captains that really surprised you? Well, I'll just say for background, uh, I did talk to more than five. There were some who didn't want anything to do with it um, and, and for various reasons. And I'm not naming them specifically, but I'm naming some possibilities. Number one, maybe you just don't want to or don't feel comfortable. Maybe you work for another team in the NHL. And you get a little nervous about that, or maybe you're actually still getting money from the Pagulas in some capacity and you don't want to speak ill of, of the team. Uh, but of the five I did speak with, I would say that some of that was mixed in, you know, they, they would also be included. Um, they, I think that the common, the common theme is that Ralph Kruger is in over his head, that the head coach doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and he is lost. And even these very um, 
wise hockey people who were in the game at a very high level, which is why I went for former captains. You can, I could say I spoke with even 10 former Sabres. Let's say I spoke with 25 former Sabres. The reader is going to wonder, well, who are these guys? I mean, you know, who, who, I mean, what are we talking about? Fourth liners, you know, guys who, you know, maybe were up and down from Rochester. Who do, who's Tim Graham get here? So I went for captains just so I could at least put the level at it. It's captains. And these are people who wore the sea. They were invested in your organization in a very emotional way. You were then as fans probably invested in them. Now, granted, there've been some captains that aren't, don't, you know, there's a scale. Um, but that's what I went for it. So these are people who know what they're looking at. They follow the team still, and they are totally confused as to what Ralph Kruger's system is, um, why he benched Jeff Skinner, why he made Jeff Skinner a healthy scratch when the team is crying for goals. And that's what Jeff Skinner does. Um, they don't like the goaltending, but they don't blame the goaltending. They, they think that uh, Kevin Adams, the general manager, should have done something more. Uh, before then, and one, uh, well, I don't want to get into individual captains. I, you mentioned the general th- general theme. Um, and I think that the one that really stood out to me most, because I think a lot of people can look at what, what, what's happening on the ice and say, you know, the coach has lost his team, um, is the leadership aspect of it. And while not being critical of Jack Eichel, um, there was a common theme that Jack Eichel should not be the captain, not because it's his fault, but because it's a team that should have invested more in leadership and character. Uh, when you have a special player like Jack Eichel to throw the captaincy on him uh, and expect him just to handle things uh, when he really has a very little life experience, he's a young human being and he hasn't experienced any success. It's losing, losing, losing. Who do you go to on this team when you say, look, Jack, or look, hey, to the leadership, how do we get out of this? Nobody on the team knows how. They've never experienced it. So um, I think that that is, that is the thing that if you could cure it, if you, if you can address one of those concerns from, those, from the five captains that I spoke with, it would probably be uh, having better um, leadership uh, underpinnings on the team. And, and I guess, I guess it's a toss up. I think, you know, Ralph, Ralph Kruger's job status obviously is, is paramount in that conversation too. I think that was a big one for me, the, the culture aspect and the leadership questions. Now, the one conversation that grabbed me was just the one where he said they're unwatchable and this interview is aggravating me. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that one? Yeah. Um, so I didn't intend to use it because it wasn't <laughs> substantive on its face. It wasn't substantive. Uh, but how I was going to tell this story, it was originally going to be a more of a traditional story where I would say this captain that, you know, and I would just write and I would obviously have in my st- I would include statistics and whatever. But I chose to write the story. And for those who did haven't had a chance to see it, it's more written in and what is called an as told to style or like a guest column almost, although in the guest column, uh, the, the author is usually anonymous. Uh, this was flipped. The author <laughs> was giving anonymity to the, to the ghost. It was ghost, uh, whatever the opposite of ghost writing is. Um, that's what this was. So um, I then had these 
these now four columns, these four essays uh, from these former captains. And it just hit me that to put it in the middle and to break up these essays, I, I think it does say something, even though the guy spoke however many words it was, a hundred words to me before he said he didn't, he didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, was still, um, it was funny, um, in a, you know, heartbreaking way, if you're a Sabres fan, but it also, it, it really illustrated the guy's frustration level. So he didn't say much, but what he did say, I thought was compelling enough to include it. Uh, Tim, before we let you go, one final question later this month, I think it's on the 20th of March fans will be allowed to return to the Sabres home arena in a limited capacity. I want you to give us your best prediction of the atmosphere, the temperature, like what the feeling is going to be inside that arena in Buffalo when they let the fans in this month. I think you have to be some kind of hockey degenerate to want to attend these games. You have a bunch of things working against you. Number one, it's a 10%. Um, the team is terrible. Um, and the border's closed off. So you don't even have the Maple Leafs fans or the Canadiens fans who want to come over and watch their team. Beyond that, you need a negative COVID test within 70, uh, 72 hours of the game. And you can't just get immediate turnaround on that. So traveling in for the game, I mean, there's all kinds of different things about you. So you're probably going to have to be a Sabres fan. So that rules out a lot of people <laughs> who are going to, who are going to want to go to this. And then you're going to have to put yourself through uh, having a Q-tip jammed up your nose and maybe have to pay for it. Maybe you have to pay 60 to to $100 for that. So there will be people there. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see not how many, but who. Like, who are these people? Uh, and they may be coming, like you say, and I think maybe what you're getting at is they may be paying and going through all this. Uh, to boo the hell out of the team for the purpose of wanting to be heard. And that's not trivial. I think that that is something that a fan, they, they, they feel the need to be heard, especially in times like this. And so, yeah, it'll be, and I guess maybe this is me helping the Sabres sell a few tickets. Uh, with as quiet as it's probably going to be, your voice is probably going to be heard on television. Uh, so you're, you're going to come through the radio broadcast. Uh, so Okay, maybe all right. I've just talked myself into all ten percent are going to get sold out uh, because that's <laughs> Western New York sports fans actually do have that in them. They'll pay the sixty five hundred dollars for the nose test. Okay, they're all going to go. They're going to be sold. I'm sorry, I've talked myself into it. Imagine uh, being a player and being like excited to have the environment of your fans back, and it's just people booing and screaming at you. It's like, I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the sound of 1800 people chanting in an arena is. It's going to, it's going to be, it's going to sound sad, uh, but they're going to, they're going to want to, you know, they're, they're going to be in unison. Um, maybe I'll go and just cover that. Maybe I'll buy a ticket and, and, and write about the experience. Yeah. Well, listen, it's going to be interesting. And Cut that uh, out. No, wait, don't put that in there. Eh, go ahead. I don't care. <laughs> All right, uh, Tim, it, it was it was great to have you on. I, I still think we need to test this theory out. I think you should cover the Sabres for like two weeks and just see if their fortunes change. And then that way we can we can pin it on you that you were, in fact, the reason why this franchise unraveled. I'm willing. I'm willing. I'll give it a shot. There we go. Hey, thanks for doing this and uh, stay safe. And we hope to see you down the road. 
Thanks, guys. All right, Haley, that was a really fun chat with uh, with Tim Graham uh, from Buffalo. And uh, you know what? It's time to head on over to Multiple Choice Madness. This is where we hit on five questions in a multiple choice format from around the week in uh, in the National Hockey League. And Haley, we're going to start with this because it was Hockey Day in America on Sunday on the weekend, and I was thinking about who, like, who are the best players on American-based teams right now? Because I think when you look at the leading scores and you hear about the the Art Ross uh, the Trophy race, the MVP race, it's always McDavid and Matthews and Drysidel and Marner and yada yada yada. Well, what about the guys playing on American-based teams? So here's the deal, Haley. I'm going to give you a team. You're starting a playoff series right now, and you can choose any player who currently plays for one of the American-based teams. Who are you picking? Is it A, Patrick Kane from Chicago, B, Victor Hedman from Tampa, C, Nate McKinnon in Colorado, D, the aforementioned Marc-Andre Fleury from Vegas, or E, I'll, I'll let you pick somebody else. Who are you going for? Oh, I mean, I'm never going for somebody else because that would just take me way long to decide, and that's not good. Uh, that's not good podcasting. Um, if we're picking yeah. right now, this, you know, dead air for five minutes while I filter through everybody, um, right now, this season, you know, if you asked me this last season, I would have said Nathan McKinnon. Um, I thought he had an excellent year. This season's been, I think he's still an elite, elite hockey player, but he has had a couple injuries here and there. Uh, it's kind of down to Patrick Kane and Marc-Andre Fleury for me. I think Fleury has shown once again, you know, you know, just the longevity of how long this guy has been, you know, an elite go-to starting goaltender is really impressive to me. Um, there was so much drama last year, you know, with Robin Leonard. And now, you know, I think Fleury is kind of solidified that he's he's the guy here in Vegas. I mean, he's 12-3 and three and has just under a 950 save percentage if memory serves. So, you know, Patrick Kane's in the, you know, the other day or last week with Dom, we talked about how Kane is, you know, the best American player ever. Um, and it's hard to not go with Patty Kane when he's having such a great year. But, um, you know, we've seen how elite goaltenders can can steal you a cup in the playoffs. So I'm going to go with Marc-Andre Fleury. Going you know with what? You're going with Flower. I, I think it's because we, we planted the image of him waiting waffles. and making waffles earlier it's in the show. It's just so likable. And I yeah. honestly like... From everything you ever hear about Marc Andre Fleury, like I wouldn't be shocked if that was actually factual. Yeah, no, but you know what? I'm going with I'm going with Victor Hedman. You know, Haley, I give me the defenseman who can log between 25 and 30 minutes a night. Uh, he's back. He had a, a, a great uh, game on the weekend. I think he's back, leading all defensemen in scoring. I think Victor Hedman is the best defenseman in the game, and I'm not even sure it's close. Like this guy has really turned into an elite. Dominant defender. We saw it in their uh, Stanley Cup run last year. Uh, I just, I, the idea, and look, I love McKinnon and Kane for the offensive upside. Flurry's obviously got a great resume, but if I have an opportunity every night where I know for 25 to 30 minutes of the night, I'm going to have Victor Hedman on the ice, give me that option. So that is what I would go to. Okay, question number two. And this kind of uh, came to mind, Haley, for me after the hit from Tom Wilson. On Brandon Carlo, it wasn't penalized in the game. And you knew that the Bruins were angry. So here's my question, Haley. Should the NHL allow for video review for dangerous hits, possibly allowing a player to be ejected from the game if they deem the hit to be dirty? A, yes, or B, no. So I'm going to use that same scenario, Haley, 
as we had uh, on Friday night, Bruins play in the Capitals. Let's say you're Boston and you're irate that mm-hmm. that play went on. You see Brandon Carlo helped off the ice. So now let's say you're Bruce Cassidy and you get a challenge. You know what? I'm going to challenge that. I want you to look at that again. And if if it's uh, a penalty, he's out of the game. If it's not, I'll take a two-minute minor. So I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Haley, I'd like to see this happen because far too often, the refer- things happen so quickly on the ice, referees miss it. And in every other situation where there's some question of things happening too fast, offside to the puck cross the line, goalie interference, we go to video review or there's a mechanism in place for it. Dangerous hit? Nope. Well, we're just going to let that uh, let that be decided. And then later on, if there needs to be a suspension, well, I'll tell you what, the Boston Bruins could have benefited in that game if, if Tom Wilson got thrown out. And too often, yeah. uh, the team that is victimized in these situations don't get the benefit of immediate justice. So I would like to see the ability for coaches to throw some sort of flag and say, look at that again, please, because a five-minute penalty in a game is just as uh, important, in my opinion, as a goal. Yeah, and I think like we're going to spend, you know, 10 minutes looking at if a guy's skate was an inch over the line, but we're not going to look at if somebody was yeah. like seriously injured and somebody deserves to be in the game or not. I think that just shows like a weird, um, you know, list of priorities. So I would agree with that. Um, you know, I'm always tentative to add more coaches challenge and more video reviews and more reasons to delay games. Um, but I do think that player safety is something that is important. So that would be, you know, you know, I'm, I'm leaning on the side of yes, but I also wonder if there's a happy medium where you don't have to have a coach's challenge for that. Like someone should just be able to call upstairs, Hey, review this and just do something like that. Like, I don't know if that's possible, but without stopping the game, can't somebody upstairs watch the replay and say, Ooh, yeah, he's out of here. Call down, stop it for a second, pull him out. I mean, I don't know if that's realistic. It ends up being the same amount of pause. Now I've just talked myself out of it. So then, yeah, I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> because, you know, like I said, we're going to say that it's worth it to look at it for guys, you know, inch, an inch or like a millimeter over like the line to be offside, but we're not going to protect players in these situations. So I think I would like to see that. I agree with you. Okay, question number three, Haley. I'm going to put you, we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of Oilers general manager, Ken Holland. He's looking at his call display, Haley. He sees a call coming in from Buffalo and Kevin Adams. Kevin Adams says, would you send me Leon Dreisaitl? I'll give you Jack Eichel. Haley, should Edmonton entertain a potential Leon Dreisaitl for Jack Eichel trade? A, yes, B, no. I don't think so. But my Eichel trades last week got me in the dumber list. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. No, and I, and I'm just, I know that Eichel is a highly skilled. He's a talented player, but so is Leon Dreisaitl. I mean, he was the MVP last year. Um, you know, he he works well with McDavid. He can. He's shown that. You know, he works well on his own line. Um, you know, I know people have raised some questions about his defensive game, but when you're scoring at the rate that Leon Dreisaitl does, who actually, like, you can get away with defensive lapses. So, and I don't think Oilers fans would go for that trade. Like, if you tweeted that right now, and you should, Oilers fans, like, I oh, I want to see the response. If you tweeted Oilers fans, Dreisaitl for Eichel, I'd want to see 
I'd want to see the response. No, well, we'll just wait for the uh, feedback to come into this podcast. Uh, like, I don't know, I'm, uh, but I'm I'm torn on this one only because Haley, it's not like the Oilers are having a ton of success, right? Like, like at some point, do you need to change up the formula in Edmonton? I don't know. Like, I, I wonder about that sometimes. And Eichel's a touch younger. Uh, he is locked in for a long term deal. Imagine you had Connor because remember a few years ago when the draft was McDavid Eichel, McDavid Eichel. Imagine you had both of them. I would tend to say no. I would tend to say I wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't dis- dismiss it out of hand because yeah. if you want to potentially change the culture or the feel in Edmonton, you're going to have to do something drastic, right? Like, so I, I don't know, but I love Drysaddle. I think he is, he's one of the best five or six players in the game. I also mm-hmm. think Eichel happens to be one of the best 10 or 12 players in the game when he's going. So it would be yeah. interesting. And I love, like, I just, and maybe it's probably more wishful thinking. Like, I just wish the NHL was bolder and we saw more kind of, flashy trades with stars. We just don't see that. So maybe it's more wishful thinking than, than anything yeah. else. I mean, I think that if the Edmonton Oilers, like I think that some of the main questions that we've seen about the Oilers is not questions of their top end talent. It's been their depth, right? So I feel like if the Oilers are to make a move to try to make them better, they should be going for ways to establish their bottom six. Um you know, maybe a huge shakeup could do it, but even if you switch out Eichel for Dreisaitl, your bottom six and your depth is still a major question. So how much is that actually solving? And is it just swapping a star for a star? And then you're you're in the same boat. It's like, okay, well, we have two great players. Right. We have two good lines. What else do we have? And it's not a disrespect to their bottom six. I just, I know that I've seen, you know, the biggest questions is when the Oilers aren't going super well, it's because their depth isn't scoring. I'm gonna. We're gonna isolate that clip and send it to Tyler Ennis for you. Okay. On to question number four, Haley. On to question number four. Uh, we got some some kind of surprising players that are in the top ten in goal scoring in the NHL. So here's my question: Which player who's got at least twelve goals so far this season is the best surprise story? Is it a Dustin Brown in LA, b Vincent Trocheck in Carolina, or c Chris Kreider? Back on the horse with 12 goals. I'll go first on this one, Haley. I'm taking B, Vincent Trocek. And you know what? I think part of it is I was in the arena, whenever that was, two or th- I think it was three years ago. It is one, I cannot escape the sound. And this is when we had fans in the stands in Ottawa. Vincent Trocek broke his ankle on the ice. And I can still remember the screaming from up in the press box and hearing it. And for Vincent Trocek, the season before that, Haley, he was a 30-goal guy. The three seasons kind of since the injury, he's had 10 goals in 50. That's the year he got hurt. 10 in 55, 11 in 62, and 10 in 55. He's out of the gates with 13 goals in 23 games. It is so great to see him back because, like I said, I, I still have that image and that moment and that sound of him screaming inside the arena. And I think it's a great story. Yeah. And and I love Dustin Brown and, and Kreider coming in with 12 goals. But I got to tell you, Vincent Trocek with 13 goals, give me that as the best surprise story for me. That's gross. Um, I hate hearing stories like that. Um, as somebody who, you know, played sports and like, had my fair share of injuries and helped my teammates off the field after, you know, tearing their ACL for the third time, hearing an ankle pop and the screams, like it just makes me, makes me cringe. Um, but, you know, we had the conversation a couple weeks ago, I think, where Dustin Brown was, was in the, was in the conversation and, you know, I've been impressed. I think um, I would say Dustin Brown. I think 
for the most part because of the difference between the expectation and the product right now. I think there was probably, you know, a fair amount of people who were writing columns about is Dustin Brown done a couple years ago. You know, he had some really great peak years under Daryl Sutter. Um, you know, he played his role. He played it really well. He was a great player for those LA Kings teams that were winning. And then he kind of had a bit of a drop off. Um, you know, I believe he's already passed his season total from a couple years ago where he only scored 11 goals, 14 goals back to back. Um, I don't have it up in front of me, so I do apologize if that's incorrect, but, you know, I think, you know, to have 12 goals already right now, I think that's great. And, you know, the Kings have been, you know, they're not like an elite team in the league, but I think, again, it's the expectation versus what's actually happening right now. And so I think I'm going to go with, with Dustin Brown because, I think a lot of people were probably thinking that he was done um, or at least just regressing. So it's been, it's been nice to see him kind of, you know, producing at this level again. Fifth and final question, Haley, March the 8th, International Women's Day. Going to end with this question. When do you think we'll see a woman as general manager in the National Hockey League? Is it A, within the next five years, B, within the next 10 years, C, maybe at some point in the next 20 years, or D, it simply will not happen in our lifetime. Haley. Uh, you know, I think it's a good question and I think that it will happen. Um, I just think, you know, with, with any kind of position with GM coach, whatever it may be, you know, these women and the men, they need to have, you know, the, the, the resume and the experience. Right. So I think that it's not going to be, you know, I think I would say within the next 10 would be safer. I mean, I would love for it to be the next five um, because there are some, you know what, I think it'll be between A and B um, because I think that there are some women who are, you know, ticking off the checks to get there. There are, you know, you look at some of the the people and the, the women in the front office in Seattle. You know, I think there's some people who like there's some really, really smart hockey minds, great analytics minds. Um Alexandra Mandricki, I I'm I I don't know if I butchered the last name, um, but you know she has been tagged as a really smart hockey mind. Um, that's somebody who could get there in five to ten years if that's what she wants. I think Florence Schelling, she's the general manager of FC Burn. I'm having a struggle with my names today, but she's a general manager right now for a men's team. And I think she could get there in five to 10 years if that's what she wants. So I think there's women who are, you know, in positions to become qualified, like legitimately qualified to be NHL general managers, because that's what I always see all the time. And I think sometimes people use that as a negative, like, oh, well, if she's qualified, she'll be able to get the job. And I think the biggest issue I have with people saying if she's qualified, she can do it is that, you know, we don't see a ton of women, or we haven't until now. I think we're starting to see it happening now. There's a lot more opportunities in those different positions. But I think for a while, we weren't seeing women given the opportunity to become qualified. Like women weren't getting to be the general manager of a European club. Women weren't being able to, you know, work in hockey operations or, you know, be a general manager with, with the USA Hockey or the USHL. And we're seeing that now. And so I definitely think that there's several women, and I didn't even name all of them, who are going to become qualified 
to be able to do this if that's where they want their career to take them. Kendall Coyne Schofield comes to mind too. She just got hired by the Chicago Blackhawks, you know, six months ago, six or seven months ago. Um, and, and she said, like, I'd love to be a general manager one day if that's where my career takes me. So um, I, I would say five to 10 years. Yeah. You know, as I look at this, Haley, I think the most significant story in the last six to 12 months on this particular topic would have been uh, the Miami Marlins in baseball hiring Kim Ang yeah. to be the general manager. And I, I think that that is, that was so groundbreaking that mm-hmm. it's going to have a ripple effect in sports. I, that, that yeah. glass ceiling or however you want to um, describe it has been shattered. And so I, I, I think the Seattle Kraken a hundred percent would be that team, right? It feels like yeah. it's going to be a forward thinking team that that yeah. does something like this. So I'm actually going to, Haley, I'm going to be super optimistic here. I'm going to say within five. the next five years. And I think a big part Amazing. of it is we have seen it in Major League Baseball. Um, I think we've seen some great things in the NBA. I think of Becky Hammond with um, the San Antonio Spurs. I think we've just seen some yeah. really forward-thinking, progressive things happening in sports. And I'm going to be super optimistic here. And I say within the next five years, uh, we will uh, we will see that. Haley, as we always do, we wrap up the show with some of our listener questions. We call it the hail bag because we open up Haley's mailbag and we merge the two words. It's called the hail bag. So uh, we threw Creative. this out on Twitter, uh, Haley, earlier today. I got a couple of questions. This is one of my favorites, Haley. This comes in from Jean-Claude Transam on Twitter, one of the best usernames out there. Jean-Claude Transam wants to know, Gang, why aren't more teams doing load management for their players? I understand that these are all four-point games, but there's a lot of injuries going on this year. Why don't we see more load management happening in the NHL? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, You know, I I think it is a big part of it is because it is four-point games, and and I do wonder... You know, everything we've had this conversation so many times about how tight the East division is going to be, how tight the North division is. You know, there's some serious playoff races happening already. And I think that for teams, if a guy says that they're good to go, the team's going to put them in because they believe that guy is going to give them the best opportunity to win that game. We're certainly seeing that with some goaltenders who have been, you know, carrying a really heavy load in terms of their starts. Um, So and I and I just. we haven't seen load management like the NBA and the NHL really ever. Am I right, Ian? I just, I don't think that's ever really been a thing that the NHL has done. It's just, you talk to these guys and if they're good to go, they want to be in. And I don't know if that's a culture thing. You know, you can argue whether it's smart or not. Like it's a really tough season. It's really compact. You got to get to the finish line. You got to get to the playoffs. But when have we ever seen load management? in the National Hockey League. I just don't think that's something that if you went to a hockey player and said, hey, do you want the night off to just rest? They would be like, no. (laughs) Right, and then they would be labeled as soft or something like that. Yeah, Um, and it's a weird culture thing, right? 100%. And, uh, you know, I think when I think load management, I think of Kawhi Leonard or or LeBron James. And it's funny because, remember, the NBA actually, it became such a pervasive problem in the NBA a couple of years ago, Haley. The league stepped in and said, you can't do this. No more. No more. But the reason why they did it was because they didn't want, I think one of the games was LeBron James sat out in Memphis and the Memphis crowd was upset. They're like, you can't, yeah. like we bought tickets. But if ever there was going to be a year for load management, wouldn't it be the year be where there's one. basically no fans? Like, they, And you have a taxi squad. Yeah. Like this would be the year and you're playing this condensed 50 
you know, six games and essentially 115 days for most teams. Like, it's okay. Like, give give Sidney Crosby a night off. Give Patrick Kane a night off. Give give whoever you think is north of 28 or 29 that might need a night off, give them a night off. Give Victor Hedman a night off. I mean, like, I, I think yeah. that you're doing it right. Here's a quick question, uh, kind of a side offshoot of all of this. This is what I wonder too, Haley. And it's kind of a load management thing, okay? If you watch an NFL football game, when a team is up by like four or five touchdowns in the third or fourth quarter, they pull the entire starting team, especially the quarterback, right? Like the quarterback gets pulled out of the game. We don't want to risk injury. Do you think we'll ever see that in the NHL where let's say um, a team – I'm going to pick the Vegas Golden Knights. Let's say Vegas is beating down on someone seven to one in the third period. Mm-hmm. Do you think Peter DeBoer would ever say, you know what, Marc-Andre Fleury, you're out of the game? You're out. Like, and we, and we'll make sure that Robin Leonard or Dansk or whoever's backing up, you've been stretching, we've been letting you know, but we pull you out of the game. Like, we've never seen that in hockey. Would that ever make sense? No, because I think we see the opposite, right? It's when you give guys, like, the the home money, um, you give them the garbage minutes. We see it when it's the opposite. We'd see that if Marc-Andre Fleury got shelled and the Vegas Golden Knights are down 7-1. Yeah. We could see Marc-Andre Fleury pulled at the end of the second and then say, okay, Robin Leonard, this game's lost anyway. It's going to be garbage time this period. Let's go and get our backup some minutes. That's what we see in the National Hockey League, not like, okay, we're up really high. Let's take our guy out and put somebody else in. Um, I don't think we'd see that because, I don't know. And I guess that's just a weird culture thing yeah, again. Yeah, I just, exactly. I like, don't think we've ever seen that because it's just – Hockey. In other in other <laughs> sports, you take out you usually remove the stars in a lopsided game, but not uh, yeah. not necessarily hockey. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Maybe some listeners that happened would love to, to be in high school basketball. Wait, were you taken out or were you oh, yeah. one of the late subs? No, I was. T- Haley, <laughs> go get some garbage minutes. We're up get by some fifty. Garbage Here minutes. You go get off the bench. No, no, we had a real. We won back to back like championships provincial championships with our team and there was always one team in our district that was terrible and like we would never get to play because like it just they were so bad so those would always be kind of the worst games because you just like sit there because they're like we can't have you we can't have you like get injured against orangeville oh you're even you're calling them out on the on the podcast I thought you were going to keep There's two it. high schools in Orangeville, so it's fine. Okay. Don't. I thought you were going to keep this anonymous like a Tim Graham <laughs> column about uh, Sabres captains. All right. Hey, speaking of the Sabres, uh, Haley, we got one last uh, mailbag, hailbag question here. This comes in from Sammy on Twitter. Says, uh, hey, the Nashville Predators look like they're ready to blow this thing up. Do you think there's any chance you could see them trading for Jack Eichel and maybe using a guy like Philip Forsberg as the main piece going back to Buffalo? I mean, I would see this a little bit like if this if the Predators are blowing it up, that would indicate like a rebuild of sorts. And I just don't know if you if you're going to blow it up to rebuild, do you just bring in Jack Eichel? I, I don't know if that's a situation that I could see being plausible. I guess if you get Jack Eichel, you don't have to rebuild. But I think there's just so many question marks on that roster that does Jack Eichel just automatically make the Nashville Predators good. Um, I think they just had a ton of problems. And I I don't know, maybe I'm just really bad at trade proposals, but I just don't know if a swap like that would make sense and just 
automatically work for both sides. Um, and yeah, like if the question is they're preparing to blow it up, that indicates a rebuild to me. So if they're blowing it up, they're going full blown like fire sale. And if you fire sale everyone and then bring in Jack Eichel, like you're just, I don't want to, are you not just the Buffalo Sabres again? Right. Yeah. I, I, like, I, I think if you're going to try to get Eichel out of uh, Buffalo, it's got to be f- for Forsberg plus, plus, plus. Like, it's, you know, that's yeah. the starting point. I just, I don't know. But Nashville is, like, there's a handful of teams in the league. Like, Buffalo takes the cake because they're, I think, they're the most passionate market. There are some other markets where Haley, like, San Jose would be one. Um, mm-hmm. Nashville, heck, I think Calgary is one. Where you just wonder, like, where where is this team going? Like, where are they going to be in 18 months from now? And Nashville, San Jose, and Calgary are on that list uh, for me, just just like the Buffalo Sabres. Okay, but we're going to have to leave it there. Haley, I suddenly got a hankering to to go find a continental breakfast somewhere. (laughs) It's a waffle day. Some Danish. Did you just, wait, what did you just say? Did you just say? It's a waffle day. Okay, but you didn't, you weren't making like like a bad pun, like it's a waffle day. Like this is waffly bad. No. Okay. Because I thought for a second you were, and then, wow, I was going to be like, okay. It's not even a, no. No. (laughs) Amazing. We'll leave it there. I love leaving on an awkward uh, spot with you, Haley, because that feels like we're we're right on brand. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening to the (laughs) Athletic Hockey Show. Subscribe to us on your uh, favorite podcast platform. Leave a rating, a review. Tell us what you like, and uh, we would really appreciate that. A reminder that annual subscriptions to The Athletic, they're available to you for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Scott Burnside, Pierre Lebrun, they're back at it. Two-man advantage edition of The Athletic Hockey Show on Wednesday. I'll drop back into this spot on Thursday. Down goes Brown, Sean McIntyre.